Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program's called Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. My name is Robert. It's rather seldom, I would think, checking my own chronology approximately two or three more times that I've had a guest back, but there are times where the guest speaks to an issue that's relevant in the present time, and there are times where that guest is very impressive in presenting his case. Our guest today is Mr. Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. Welcome to Seldom Said, Jeff. Thanks for having me on again, Robert. It's always a pleasure. It's our pleasure, I can assure you. Can you give us a little pricey of your activity since our last interview? Absolutely. So, um, you know, we're continuing to go to state capitals and local governments to discuss the issue of bail reform. Uh, but something kind of big has happened uh, this year, which is that the New York bail reform law took effect in January. And so we're seeing, uh, you know, all kinds of news articles and stories about what's happening there. And then the other thing that and we can get more into this is that this conversation on this risk assessment, pretrial risk assessment algorithm is continuing to to change uh, as we go forward. Uh, and so, you know, it's been the same uh, the same things I've been doing before, just uh, trying to trying to continue to get our message out. It seems rather difficult to precisely put one's finger on a policy that states agree upon. I know New York seems to be in incredible flux. Do you find that uh, government really has not done its job in precisely defining what bail should be? I think so, and it's it's it varies tremendously by state. And you go to some states, and they want to make um, you know the bail system more difficult on defendants, and put more you know electronic monitors on them, and higher bails. Uh, you know, expanding preventative detention, meaning detention without bail for some cases. Like we've got several bills in Alabama that would just deny bail you know, all together. And then you've got other state governments that are saying, hey, let's just, you know, not make anybody post bail. And, you know, until you're convicted that, you know, you'll never be held in jail. And what it's really driven by Robert and having gone back into bail history, back to the year 51 AD, there's just no understanding of what the purpose of bail is. And I have determined that we've been having this conversation, you know, for 2000 years, and we still haven't resolved it. But I think if you don't understand the history, you just you just go with the label cash bail is bad and proceed from there. And that's really not a good way to understand what's going on. It would seem that to understand bail at all, one would have to presuppose what the penalty for a crime should be. Do you agree that we really haven't precisely defined the different qualities and quantities of bail given the precise nature of a crime? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, obviously bail is not supposed to be punitive. But at the same time, you know, and, and this was an example that I got out of Missouri is that a um, a current representative, when he was a prosecutor, was trying a case, and the maximum potential penalty on the case was 30 days. Well, the gentleman had been in jail for 120 days prior to trial. And so his argument was, well, maybe we should cap uh, some of these situations where, you know, can, can we really, you know, is it punitive to hold somebody for 120 days when they only, you know, are going to be held for 30 days? And of course, I told somebody else uh, that on the conservative side, and you know, their argument was, well, why would they even be there in the first place if it's only a 30-day potential penalty? And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's we need to kind of straighten out what the penalties are and then 
kind of make the bail system fit um, better in terms of in, in terms of that, unlike it does now. Do you feel that there's the uh, potential for a great many lawsuits on the part of individuals who feel they've been in, ineffectively tried or racially blockbusted uh, for some reason? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've seen certainly seen some of those. Uh, you know, the one I just read about in New York a few moments ago was that, you know, ICE rigged the algorithm uh, to make it more difficult for immigrants to get out of jail. So there's always, and unfortunately, and I'm gonna, I hate to say this because I grew up in a law enforcement family, but unfortunately, there are abuses by the state and the police. And luckily, I can draw from my own Scots-Irish heritage of hating the government uh, to help me kind of reconcile all that. But it happens, unfortunately. And you know, we need defendants to be able to sue the state to get it right, to force the changes that need to happen. In your overview of the national situation, Jeff, have you come across a, a circumstance where you say, all right, they're on the right track. This is something I can feel amenable toward. This is something with potential. I think so. And really what it's been is using the criminal justice system as a collections mechanism. Um, you know, the idea that we're going to have criminal defendants pay for their own prosecution, pay for their own pretrial supervision, pay for their bail, pay for restitution, pay for their own probation, pay for fines, fees, costs, restitution and surcharges and all this stuff and that we're going to fund the criminal justice system off of them is a problem. And so any reforms that I've seen where the system is pushing back on that, I think is appropriate because, look, these people are flawed in the first place, unfortunately, right? They have issues. That's why they commit crimes. And the idea that they can just behave like a normal citizen and all of a sudden write a check is stupid. And in fact, I said that at a conference of judges and got a standing ovation. So everybody knows these people are have problems and, and are messed up in a certain way. And the idea that we're just going to extract money out of them to run you know, the dragnet back on them um, just doesn't make any sense. Someone recently shared with me his thought as a psychologist that crime was an aberration a mental aberration of the psyche, and in a sense to try and convict someone of something they're not able to stop is a violation of their inalienable right just to be a person. Is that overdoing it? Probably. I mean, I think, you know, there's, and that's always a tough call in these uh, cases of, of, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity or, you know, you're incompetent to proceed, is, you know, when you can actually form uh, the mental capacity to commit the crime. And, you know, there's a difference, I think, between evil and mental illness. Um, but those issues are really hard to figure out as, as to when somebody should be criminally culpable. Now, I think if we look at it in the larger kind of picture of, of you know, the history of this country and the, and the way things are set up is that people who get into crime typically come from bad situations, whether it's a bad neighborhood, a bad um, area or, you know, segregated housing and all that stuff. And that's not to say, you know, obviously the old saying is that the, you know, biggest criminals in America wear suits and ties. That's, you know, that, so it's not all of it, right? There's obviously embezzlement and all this sort of thing. But the vast, vast majority of these situations, violent crimes, homicides, all this sort of thing is driven by that and our inability to, you know, fix the housing segregation problem that I feel is sort of a legacy, a legacy of slavery. And as I tell people around the country, if you don't change the inputs, the situation of people going into the criminal justice system, we can't change the outputs. And so there's only so much we can do in criminal justice reform to fix the underlying issues. There are a number of people, uh, ex-President Obama amongst them, who say that we've never really totally understood or had the proper discussion 
of the inherent qualities of slavery and what it's done to the country at large, do you feel there has never been a proper discussion of the bail situation, the judicial system, and race? I think so. I think, you know, in looking back at the history of bail, this concept of dangerousness, right, that we're going to assess people as dangerous or treat them as dangerous, really was a product of the 1960s. Uh, Dangerousness was never uh, an issue in terms of bail up until that time. It was simply appearance. Now, I think the entire criminal justice system suffers from what you said, and I agree, which is a lack of conversation about slavery. And there's really two things that struck me about this. Uh, One is that, as Martin Luther King said, you know, when the Civil War ended and the slaves were freed, you know, 40 acres and a mule didn't apply to them. In other words, they had no opportunity to leave uh, the East Coast, the South, and move to the West like all the other settlers did and get free land and get the ability to to do all that. And certainly some of them did, but the vast, vast majority uh, of former slaves either continued in their current situation or moved to the industrial centers of the North. So I don't think we ever really reconciled that. The other thing that really struck me is research that I've seen that people who are not from slave backgrounds, but are still African-Americans perform better. They do better as, and so you would say, is it simply the color of the skin that we're looking at here or is there something deeper? And I think the answer is there is something deeper because, you know, like my nephew was adopted from Africa. Uh, He's African-American. He's from Ethiopia. He's going to probably do better than those uh, who uh, descended from slaves for some reason. And at least the research will show that. And I think that shows that we've got to do a much better job on this. And, and there has to be some fundamental change. And I can tell you right now, Robert, it's not going to come from the criminal justice system. That's not going to fix it. Your nephew, I must uh, say that I have uh, interracial children in my own family. Do you feel that it is the inherent need of every parent, or in your case, uncle, or in my case, grandfather, to give that talk to an individual of different pigment as to how they should react and act in the presence of law enforcement? Um, You know, he's a little too young for that now, but I probably, you know, will explain it to him at some point, which is, look, Uncle Jeff's a lawyer. So just do what the police say for now, and we'll work all this out later. Uh, But, you know, if you're from a bad neighborhood, you don't understand that. You just are taught that the police are a tool of oppression, unfortunately, which, you know, in certain cases, you know, can certainly be the case. So, but for now with him, you know, I just try to have him, make him have a normal life. You know, he loves going ice fishing and fishing. So I take him ice fishing and just try to have him be a normal kid fitting in. And obviously, you know, he's from an athletic background. So, you know, his first soccer game, he he scored four goals because he's faster than all the other kids. So there, you know, there's, there's definitely differences between him and the other kids. And I think he realizes it. Um, But at this point, I think, um, you know, he's not in a bad neighborhood. He's out in the suburbs of Denver. And so his whole perception of this uh, system is going to be different when he gets older. And certainly I'm going to talk to him about all that and how we got here and what it all means. Do you feel that an understanding of that heritage should be part of every school system and every curriculum? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I, I, uh, I talk to a lot of people as I go, travel throughout the country. And so one night I decided I was going to make the case for reparations. Uh, And I made a pretty compelling case. Now, then I sort of, you know, uh, took a little bit of heat the next day for saying that that might be an extreme position. But is it really an extreme position? Uh, And maybe it's not, you know, we write everybody a check who can prove um, that they, you know, came from enslaved 
uh, populations. But, you know, we were able to do this with the Native American populations and, you know, at least let them have some land and, and put them, you know, in a, in, a, in a little bit of a better situation. So something's got to give here. And whether it's free college, you know, something, there has to be some way to sort of give these people the economic opportunities that they deserve and give them a head start of getting into these economies. Because if we don't, we're going to be talking about this for another hundred years. And somehow other countries are able to fix this, you know, and we just can't seem to be able to do that. Indeed. I do uh, a great deal of work uh, in regard to uh, an indigenous population on the reservation. Their solutions seem to be separation, living within and yet without. Do you feel that is possible in regard to neighborhoods? Yeah, you know, I, my, my view is that, you know, all of America should be where any of Americans should live. And, you know, I think it's okay if people, you know, want to live uh, with people of common heritage. That's fine. But I, but I, but I think the bigger goal would be to have a multicultural society where none of this matters, where, you know, my Scots Irish heritage of hating the government uh, can go right along with somebody else's heritage. Uh, and we can all say we're all Americans. And, and, you know, frankly, you know, I, I heard another argument and, and, you know, this is not popular, but somebody who was not from the United States, which said, why don't we just facilitate um, the move of these people back to Africa? And of course that's a no, no to say um, in the United States, but frankly, it's wrong because, the African-American people that came to this country are every bit as American as I am. And, 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 and you know, to, to say that they aren't, I think, you know, would be the first mistake. So my view is we, we need a multicultural society, multiracial society, and we should all be comfortable living next to whoever it is uh, living next to us. I'm uh, bringing up a memory in my own mind as you say that. Uh, I am of Italian heritage. My father was a member of the Knights of Columbus. We marched in the St. Pat's Parade we ended up at uh, a local Irish tavern, McSorley's, eating pizza. And there was something about uh, the quality of everything and anything under one label. With all of these examples you've raised and talking about the possibilities of one society, some sociologists argue that that will not happen until we have a society that's miscegenate, until we have society that is so interrelational, that race does not matter. Is that naivete? No, I think there's probably something to that, that, you know, over time people will forget where they came from. Although perhaps maybe the advent of, uh, you know, Ancestry.com and DNA tests maybe will continue to remind us. Uh, and kind of a funny story, a friend of mine was assessed 1% assessed Asian, uh, which uh, they later changed to say he was an Asian. So for about a year, he was all into Asian culture and uh, claiming that his wife was discriminating against him because he was Asian. But, you know, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's got to be, um, you know, intermarriages of people of different races and cultures over time, different relationships, children being born of mixed races before this will ever go away. And right now, I think that's starting to happen. But uh, and particularly of people who were not former, uh, did not descend from former slaves. Uh, other uh, ethnic populations, uh, and, and certainly everybody would just say white is white, and we all know it's not. There's Italians, there's you know Irish, and all that. But that label amongst white people seems to have gone away. So, um, you know, I'm optimistic, but I still think we have got to do something about you know those who descended from former slaves. We know that's a problem that we haven't solved. Everything must begin with that proverbial one step. 
What do you feel is the most significant step that has to be attempted and attained by government at the present time? For me, it's housing. I mean, if I was advising President Trump, I would have them on a uh, steamroller in the south side of Chicago uh, and rebuilding the neighborhood, getting rid of terrible housing units um, and finding opportunity for people to move to another neighborhood, to rebuild the south side into something else. Um, but it's housing. I mean, you know, you go to Trenton, New Jersey, go down there and tell me that that's a good place for somebody to grow up. Uh, you go to some of these neighborhoods and it's just, it's terrible. And we can't allow that to happen uh, anymore in this country. And so I think that's the answer is that, you know, we've got to end housing segregation. I know that's a big statement to make and, you know, I'm not you know, privy to all the solutions, but I know that's what has to happen. We're within a minute of our first break and these things always go by rather quickly, Jeff. One of the things that comes up constantly, especially in the city of New York, and I'll just posit this question, then we'll return to it after the break, the questions of neighborhoods. I do remember people blockbusting neighborhoods, knocking them down, putting up projects and claiming they were vertical neighborhoods and they were not. They were simply breeding grounds for crime and dislocation. I wonder if in understanding the law, we have to understand a measure of architectural necessity as to what we can do in urban areas and how we can in some way create a circumstance where people know the person next door and they can live in a community and a sense of community rather than simply having to go downstairs. The story being told of individuals who are afraid to take the elevator and the projects in Brooklyn. It's the question I'd like to come back to after our first break. We'll take that now. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit WCWP.org. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. Uh, my name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Our special guest, Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. Jeff, uh, the question we posited before the break, I do remember being in a project recently, waiting for the elevator, waiting with an elderly couple who were terrified to enter the elevator with me. With me as a Caucasian, I would wonder how they felt uh, if there was a racial distinction there, I find myself more and more when considering law to consider sociology. Do you feel that the law is not as understanding of culture as it should be? Yeah, I think so. And I think we, we haven't really um, adapted to the modern era. You know, a professor of mine at the University of Rochester said that if you go back in the history of politics over thousands of years, it's always been urban versus rural. And why? Because the urban centers was where banking happened, where the finest foods were, where the culture was. Uh, and now I think that's changed. I think, you know, with the advent of the internet, telephones, all this sort of thing, there's really no reason to live in a big city, really, uh, when, it, when it comes down to it, other than lack of affordable housing somewhere else. Uh, and the idea that you've always lived in the city, that your family um, has lived in the city. So I think that is one big shift that's happened um, that the law needs to take into account. And the other thing is that, you know, 
the law does come from, uh, you know, the English arist aristocratic tradition. I mean, we our system's based on English common law. And so I think it's slow um, to recognize that there's different viewpoints. And, you know, that's not to say that the Constitution is a founding documents fund fundamentally flawed, but I think our understanding of rights uh, really hasn't changed as quickly with the times as perhaps it should. Recently, I spent some personal time with an individual who had served 35 years behind bars and speaking to the individual, trying to find some common sense of how that individual could step into society and understand its needs and responsibilities. Do you feel that education should be part of the system? Yeah, and so we've, you know, and I've, I've, I started my whole concept with prison, thinking about prisons and prison reforms with a joke that I went on a media show and said that if you want to uh, fix the system, you should call Tom Baudet from Motel 6. He could create a, for thirty nine ninety nine a night, he could put a fence around a Motel 6 and we could call it prison. But the effect of that would, and you know, I thought it was hilarious at the time, but as I began to think about it, it occurred to me, what is the need for prison? There's two reasons, right? To punish someone and to segregate them from the rest of society. Because we want to segregate them from the rest of society does not mean we have to put them in a cage all the time. I don't think it does. I don't think it does. And I think that's the antithesis of any ability to have rehabilitation because their life is so turned upside down. On the other hand, if they were living in a small apartment, they were educating themselves and there were technical and other educational programs, and we could teach them how to learn to live a normal life, what we would consider a, a normal life, um, you know, that would be much more effective. Because the reality is, these people who come out of prison are not well equipped to jump into the workforce. The, you know, part of the reason they had to get into the crime situation in the first place is they never had the ability to live what we would consider a normal life, have a job, do your job, have a family, have a stable housing situation, you know, uh, all, all these sorts of things. And I think it, that would be the number one change I would make is, look, yeah, obviously there's the Hannibal Lecter folks that we need to keep in, you know, the deep, dark state prisons and the supermaxes and all that. But for the vast majority of these people, they need help. They need help. And, you know, punishment of removing them from, from society is enough. And I don't think putting them in a cage and punishing them gets any better results or makes anybody in society feel any better about it. Do you feel then, Jeff, that the population at large is the area that should be focused upon? The people who are outside have to be in some way educated to understand what it's like to be inside. I do. I don't, you know, if you've never been in a jail or prison, you don't get it. You don't get it. And you got to ask yourself why. If these people are danger, a danger to a guard, danger to another inmate, or they have some you know, psychological problems where they just can't get along. Why are we doing that? We keep them in these pods. We let them, you know, go out and play basketball and all this stuff. That's fine. But, you know, it's really dehumanizing in my, in my view. And, you know, some might argue, hey, they deserve it. They, you know, harm somebody and they deserve it. But, you know, punishment is one thing. I think rehabilitation is another. And, and you know, as you know, the shift from punishment to rehabilitation is still in process. Some Folks believe there should be no re rehabilitation, but my, you know, for my money, uh, prison is dehumanizing. If we don't let people see that, then there will never be any change. How do you respond to those politically today who talk about prisons as simply an example of retribution? Well, I, I mean, I think it is. I mean, I think it's punishment. That's what that's what um, you know the law has said. In fact, the first um, 
African-American uh, lawyer judge to ever reach the Court of Appeals level, Judge Amalia Curse wrote in an opinion that the purpose of the criminal justice system is to define what the crimes are and punish those who commit the crimes. And that's it. But I think that view is an older view. Um, and I, and it is retributive in the sense that, yeah, we're making you, we're paying you back for what you did to somebody. But at the end of the day, you know, if you ask your average person on the street, what they really want, if they're a victim of the crime, the answer is restitution, right? And if you, and you know, I'm a, obviously a reader of the Bible, you know, but it's paying your debt is what it has always been defined as, right? You're paying your debt to society. And so it's known as this concept of debt. And for me, that is you cause damage that you need to try to undo more so than it's productive to say, okay, we'll send you to prison for 10 years. Uh, this person lost hundreds of thousands of dollars as a result of your actions. But the reality is we're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars punishing them rather than equipping them to repay and make good on what they did. So, you know, it is retributive. And I think we need to rethink the way that we do all this. The whole idea of risk assessment it would seem that we're trying to find the guilt quotient on a graph. Can you, uh, Jeff, summarize in a few minutes the arguments pro and con and what the inherent weakness of risk assessment is? Well, as you said, that's exactly what it does. It you know, gives somebody a score of how risky they are. I think assessing somebody's future dangerousness, and in the same opinion that I just cited from Judge Kurse, what she says is we punish people for what they have done, not for what they may do in the future. We don't do that. And so the current risk assessment would say, well, you know, we need to treat people differently based on what they may do in the future, uh, which kind of makes sense to folks, you know, in the criminal justice system, which is, hey, we need to apply the resources to, you know, supervising, incarcerating, rehabilitating the high risk defendants, right? Because we think they're going to all uh, do it again. On the other hand, does the risk methodology create an endless cycle for people that they can't get out of? And the answer is yes. Um, research from Rice University has shown that these tools of labeling people as dangerousness is sort of like a criminal scarlet letter from which you cannot escape and which is like a snowball over time. The more you do it, the more risky you become. And so, you know, Professor Wirth's argument is these risk tools and this risk methodology is why we have generational mass incarceration. And I have to agree with them. I have to agree with them. That is, we've seen that. And I think this risk methodology and embedding it into our criminal justice system is the reason. The Pretrial Justice Institute and their rationale for reversing a hardcore issue they had defended over the years, was there any rationale for that? Did you see it coming? They haven't offered any alternatives, indeed, uh, in regard to what they're doing. They haven't offered any alternatives. Did I see it coming? Yes, I did. Uh, and it was really, and we talked about this in 2018 when, you know, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, the NAACP and the ACLU said, hey, we got problems with these. Um, there's validity problems and problems of racial bias. We knew uh, the end was inevitable at some point. And I think they probably just got tired of me criticizing them for, you know, the hundreds of, well, maybe not hundreds of millions, but millions of dollars over the last generation, they've spent to embed these very risk assessments. And so, you know, I don't like to use the phrase blood on their hands, but I mean, they're the ones that spread all this. Uh, you know, the Arnold Foundation gave them grants, everybody gave them grants to spread all this. And so, you know, I don't want to kind of 
dwell on that much, but I think they have an obligation uh, to undo the mess that they've caused, and they should be doing that. And unfortunately, they're not. And I think the other problem is that they've lost credibility now because you know they pushed this for so far, and now they realized it was wrong, and nobody really trusts them anymore. Uh, and so that's and so that's a problem. But um, you know, I I think they I think they made the right decision. I think they realized that there were problems of validity and racial bias. And what is this really doing for us? Uh, it hasn't decarcerated. And that's what we learned through the last generation is that these don't have any effect. And academic research <clears throat> backs us up on this point that they didn't decarcerate the jails. So I think they made the right decision. And, you know, I hope they'll work hard to undo the damage they caused. In our discussion, are we coming to that point where we have to admit that we have to settle for the best possible scenario? That the idea of good, bad, indifferent, success, and failure are non sequiturs when we're talking about the rational possibility on the street? Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not sure. I, you know, I think, um, you know, we've just, we've got to completely push the reset button on this whole bail reform and, and labeling people as risk in the pretrial phase. And that also goes for supervision policies. You know, and as we've, <laughs> as we've discussed before, if people are presumed innocent, then why are we going to send them to be on probation while they're pending trial, right? So there's, there's many more issues, I think, that we need uh, to get into uh, going forward. New York is discussing publicly the idea of cash or unconditional release. Both seem to be extreme positions that don't have a basis in fact. Where does one stand in regard to having cash bail or simply unconditionally release people who are not guilty of violent crimes? Well, I mean, I think, you know, in reading back to, you know, uh, you know, Sir Edward Koch and some of the legal history that I've been reading over the last 2000 years, that's been the scenario. But really, you know, when we when we use the word cash bail, we mislabel what bail is. Uh, bail is the personal surety system, which means historically it has been I am putting up for Robert. I am promising with a financial guarantee that Robert will be there and do what Robert is supposed to do. Uh, there was never the expending of funds in advance. And arguably, bail agents are, and I think the Supreme Court has said this, are an extension of the personal surety system because we don't charge 100%. We charge a fraction, and then we put up you know, the entire financial guarantee. The, the distinction historically, and I think of what should happen in New York, is judicial discretion. Defendants should be able to request bail if they want it, and they don't want to be have all their other liberties uh, saddled. Prosecutors should be able to request bail to guarantee, you know, under Stack versus Boyle, the purpose of bail, which is setting it at a figure reasonably calculated to ensure um, the appearance of the defendant. So I think, you know, unfortunately, nobody on either side is going to like that answer. Uh, but that's what judges have been doing for a long time, and in particular in New York by never considering dangerousness. Dangerousness has never been a factor in New York and they've never authorized preventative detention. And so I think the system works pretty well. And I think the numbers bear that out. I mean, if you look at New York as the size of a bail market, it's small, quite small for the size of the population, which tells me that the system, despite the alleged abuses, was actually performing fairly well and needed some adjusting on some of these low level cases like the Khalif Browder case, et cetera, but that, on the whole, the system was probably performing pretty well. New York is experimenting with this policy of accelerated discovery, Jeff. Is there a danger in overdoing this and having basically a speedy trial at the expense of a careful 
execution of justice? I think so. And I've certainly heard that from law enforcement and prosecutors, that the burden's just too high, that we've kind of overdone it in the sense that, you know, what was the problem that we were trying to solve? Were there all these discovery abuses by the police? Were they so widespread that we wanted to apply this draconian rule to all cases rather than making it an option when a criminal defense lawyer either wanted something or had reason to believe that the police were concealing evidence? I just hadn't, I, I hadn't seen that as a big a problem. Obviously, I focus on bail and not discovery, but I've heard that the police are hamstrung, that we're not getting to resolution, that they're having to dismiss cases because they don't have the resources uh, to comply with these laws. So I think they need to be changed. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately, it's being conflated with the bail issue and just being called criminal justice reform, but they're two entirely uh, separate issues. And incidentally, law enforcement, um, many law enforcement in New York um, don't care about the bail reform law. They care more about the a discovery law, but you wouldn't know that if you just say, well, where's everybody on criminal justice reform? Is the idea of a presumption of openness then a non-sequitur? No, I, you know, I guess you just have to define what we mean by openness. And I think, you know, the rules in place for what um, criminal defendants are able to see, and certainly, you know, the law of, of, of Brady versus Maryland, that, you know, any link in the chain of offensive evidence used uh, to a convicted defendant is discoverable, uh, that prosecutors are, are under a burden to disclose inculpatory or exculpatory evidence uh, to the defense. So I think that is the definition of openness. I think there's other um, avenues to hold the police and prosecutors accountable. And I think, um, you know, while there are abuses, as I've said, I just, I don't think it's as widespread as perhaps, you know, others might. But again, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, on this area. And many politicians, Mayor de Blasio, Governor Cuomo, are reversing their positions almost virtually constantly in regard to this particular issue of openness, of bail, of plea bargaining. Do we need some sort of generalized national meeting, construct, convention, where we talk about how we'll do things over these 50 states? I mean, it would be helpful. I mean, obviously we have, you know, National Center for State Courts, uh, all, all kinds of various policy groups that have um, these continuing conversations, but it would be really cool to have a national summit on bail and pretrial release. Uh, and I would probably pay to sponsor that and have people lay their, um, you know, best arguments on the table and try to find best practices. There's a group called the Uniform Laws Commission that's been working on this for the last two years. I've attended the meetings uh, to try to find some best practices, um, but it's just, it's really kind of weak at this point. I mean, people really aren't talking about um, how, to, how to create a national model uh, that makes more sense. And frankly, a lot of local jurisdictions would never go for it. Uh, they like the way the system works. They want to keep it. Example, St. Louis. Uh, in St. Louis, uh, lawyers uh, lean their own clients' funds and get their own clients' bail funds uh, before the case is completed. So do they want to eliminate 10% of the court cash bail? No, they don't because that's how they get their fees paid. So there's going to be a lot of local resistance uh, on this if we were to create a national model. But I, I think it's time. It's time to have a national bail summit and try to get this conversation going. We've been talking about those great and wondrous things that are possible and hopefully permissible in the future. We're within uh, 30 seconds of our second break. When we come back, uh, we possibly can talk about the activities of the American Bail Coalition presently, the ideas that you have, Jeff, for changes, 
the ideas that you have for your own personal future and perhaps writing that book that we brought up uh, during previous programs, this idea of bail and the American justice system is a question that has many tales and no ends. We'll be back in a few seconds. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Rome once fell, and all great civilizations do. Is America falling? Could we be doing more? Some say it's because we have stopped focusing on learning and understanding what it means to be a good citizen. That's what this podcast is all about. If civics is dead, what happens next? Subscribe to Civics is Dead on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice, or visit wcwp.org slash civics is dead. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. We're into our last segment of a discussion of the American bail situation. Our special guest is Mr. Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. Jeff, if we could uh, segue into discussing the impact of bail on plea bargaining and uh, as to whether plea bargaining is something that in the city of New York they've been talking about eliminating it, but is it something that uh, it's going to be totally unnecessary if we have a proper bail scenario created? Well, uh, you know, bail definitely has an impact on plea bargains. Um, not being able to post bail probably has the biggest impact on plea bargains because people want to get out of jail and they may plead even if it's if it's a close case. Uh, and in some cases, when they didn't even do it because uh, you know they already have prior convictions and one more one more misdemeanor conviction is not going to make a difference. Uh, and the one interesting thing that I'm, that we want to get statistics on is what is the impact of a of a system of preventative detention on plea bargains? And what we posit, what we think is happening in New Jersey is that because they're filing preventative detentions motions in a majority of cases, uh, and then they're dismissing quite a huge number of those that those people are pleading guilty. And so the hammer of saying, we're going to lock you up and throw away the key um, and not do bail, you know, is a problem. So um, in the future, what will happen, you know, I think, obviously, you know, as Chief Justice Rehnquist said, liberty should be the norm. Obviously, that hasn't happened since 1984 in the federal system. Uh, you know, we tripled incarceration, but liberty should be the norm. And the more people can be out of jail fighting their case and enjoying the presumption of, the, uh, of innocence, you know, I think the better. And um, and if people aren't guilty, yeah, we can't force them to go to treatment. We can't force them to, you know, do the criminal intervention that we think is going to work. So it definitely has a big impact on pleas. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how, you know, things play out in New York under the new system. If you were standing at at the admissions office of a law school and saw students coming in, Jeff, what might you tell them to advise them as to how they should approach situations like this and the areas of the law you would love to see them specialize in? Well, I would tell a lot of them not to go to law school um, because a lot of the people that go, go for the wrong reasons. They go either because they have a large ego, uh, because they've seen things on TV, uh, or for financial reasons. And frankly, getting a business degree will make a lot more money in the law. You know, one of my mentors, Chief Justice Malarkey, said the highest uh, calling for a lawyer is public service. Uh, and certainly that was the first part of my career was public service. But you have to get into the guts of the operation and see how things work. And when you see that, that changes your whole picture of what the system is, because you assume 
that there's time in all these criminal cases to uh, properly understand the facts. And I've told many a story on this show and others about how that just doesn't happen, that the system doesn't have uh, the ability to have the individual consideration that we want. So, and I would encourage people to go into criminal law uh, on both sides of it uh, to, um, you know, look at how we can improve the system. And certainly there's a movement to put, you know, progressive prosecutors in office uh, to get changes. But, you know, I, I would tell any law school student that, you know, this is a journey of justice. It's not one where your ego is going to or should increase, uh, that you're going to be some high roller. And that, you know, even though I've been on, you know, almost every major national network, you know, I'll be putting on my hoodie and going to get on the train to Philadelphia this afternoon, and I'm not going to roll around like I'm some high flyer. And, you know, I think a little humility uh, goes a long way. And as my former mentor, Judge uh, Kane, uh, once said, hubris is what is destroying the legal profession. And that's something that, you know, I think everybody needs to look at. Your statement about not going to law school struck a nerve. Uh, I have any number of students who are in the law school scenario situation, and they've question me on occasion as to when they'll be understanding the law. They're basically just memorizing and recounting. Do you feel that we possibly could have a situation where law school becomes, at least in its first two years, a laboratory that simply guides students in the community while they're preparing? Yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so, you know, my view on law school is not a popular one, but legal education is worthless the way it's set up right now. Um, the only reason I succeeded was really two things. One, I was on the debate team for 10 years. Uh, I learned how to be, get into, into the debate, have the debate, be comfortable, you know, basically losing <laughs> and being made to look like a fool and getting used to the fact that getting a hard skin uh, and all that. When I went to law school, I, I never went to law school uh, except for the first year. And the first year, you're right. I mean, it's really just memorizing a bunch of stuff all of which in the modern era, you don't need to memorize. You can just pull up. So I think, yes, we need to learn about civil rules and, and have some courses. But the only the second reason why I succeeded is I had three jobs through the rest of it. You know, I worked for a federal judge. I was clerking for an attorney. I was doing volunteer uh, stuff to try to learn how the actual business of the law and how the law, how the courtroom works uh, and all that sort of thing. So I would make it a more practical exercise because, you know, the problem is some people just don't have it. They, they can memorize all the stuff, but when they put them in the courtroom, they can't do it. When you put them in a, in a, nego a stressful negotiating system, they can't handle it. And it would be nice uh, for people <laughs> to know whether they can handle it long before they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and gone into debt. So I would fundamentally remake legal education uh, if it were up to me. So that first scene in Paper Chase where Professor Kingsfield tells his students, you come to me with a mindful of mush, and when you leave, your lawyers... You buy that as Hollywood and nondescript and not meaningful at all. Yes, and this whole Socratic method that's inherent in many law schools of just putting people on the spot and embarrassing them and all this sort of thing, it doesn't matter. That's, that's so far gone in our current world and, and it's ineffective. And I don't think, you know, I can't point to any class in law school other than jurisprudential theory where I felt like I actually learned something. And jurisprudential theory is, is an interesting course because what you're talking about is the organization of the legal system, right? Um, the idea of, you know, how do we criminalize things? When do we have an administrative state? When do we not? All that sort of thing. I actually learned something from. But, yeah, they, the, the mind is still mush. Let's just put it that way. Are you a believer in returning to an older time, uh, that story of Hamilton studying with a judge 
as you did uh, and learning from them, in point of fact, in some way being mentored, is mentoring the answer? It is. It is. And, you know, as I told you before, I had three great mentors, um, you know, who I refer to as the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these guys were my trinity. Uh, one was a federal judge. One was a chief justice of the Colorado Supreme Court. And the other one was just a darn good lawyer that knew those guys from back in the day when they were all on the debate team at East High School uh, in Denver, Colorado. So, you know, you learned all aspects of it from the how the federal system operates, how the state system operates, and how, you know, to be professional. And as, uh, you know, Michael Kahn just told me, you know, you the, you, the one thing that you have that you got to keep going is you're always going to be professional when you go through these. And, and what being a professional means, uh, that when you're mad at another lawyer, you just put it aside and act professionally. And so proper mentoring is the key. And frankly, I wish I had some time uh, to, 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 you know, mentor a few students uh, and just, you know, get them going on the right path. Because it's, the answer isn't in the library. Let me tell you that right now. One argues on the part of professional poker players that the answer is at the table. Do you feel that part of the lesson should be learning how to play the game? Absolutely. Absolutely it should. And I think... Um, you know, it's when, when to fight, when not to fight, how to negotiate, all these sorts of things in the law. But the important thing is justice, you know, and I used to be criticized early in my career for getting to the result the judge wanted to get rather than pushing the envelope as far as I could for my client, right? I could have gotten more if I pushed harder for my client than what I thought was just. And so, you know, that getting in the game and actually, you know, trying it out and, and all this sort of thing. And I wish people could go try it out before they went to law school. Certainly a lot of us do who are on, you know, speech and debate teams, we realize, okay, we either have it or we don't. And people figure that out pretty fast. But it's just sad that, you know, you can go to a liberal, liberal arts college, have no uh, speaking experience or ability and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars only to get out and realize I can't do this or that you can't take the stress because it's a very stressful job. I would certainly subscribe to that. It would seem that you can major in anything. And I found this in some of the better universities in the country. Being a doctor, one majors in the sciences and bio and biochem. Being a lawyer, one can major in virtually any subject at all. It seems inane. I think so. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, again, I, I point back and I was, we were having this conversation, uh, I guess it was, was with my Lyft driver yesterday. That my undergraduate degree, I love my alma mater. It's a fantastic place. I had a wonderful time. But I don't really remember anything from undergraduate except, you know, I won the National Junior Debate Tournament in 1995. That's it. And I was on the debate team. I was up all night working on briefs for debate and learning how to advocate. And, you know, I remember the first time I debated Harvard and I left with my tail between my legs and I wanted to quit, but I didn't. And I kept coming back and I kept coming back in my senior year. We were two and one against Harvard. So, you know, you, you have to go through that process of almost being beaten down mentally and emotionally if you're going to be an effective advocate. Because, you know, look at my job now. I'm not popular. You know, everybody says I'm a tool for a racist industry. That's a hard label to, to have uh, and to reconcile and to still get up every morning and fight. But that's what it takes, right, is going through it in the past. This is a strange segue, perhaps, in the next question. But when you talk about experientially dealing with success and failure, are we also flirting with the idea of courses that don't require a grade? Yeah, I don't even understand why we really have grades anymore. I mean, you're, you're either competent to move forward or you're not. You either learn the stuff 
or you didn't. And I don't think this whole idea that you know we're going to base everything on whether you got a 3.5 or a, or a 3.8 or any of this stuff really matters. Certainly, that's the case at Yale Law School, which is the only law school I'm familiar with that doesn't have grades. You get a pass or fail. Um, and so, yeah, I don't I don't think these gradations in law school mean anything. Uh, I'm a much better lawyer than people uh, who got a lucrative job outside of law school and, and got a summer associateship and all that. I'm a much better lawyer than many of them. Uh, but it's only because of the background, not because I got a B, you know, in civil procedure. You've raised something that deals with a, a kind of self-reflection, Jeff. When one simply stands there in the essence of their own presence and decides whether they are acceptable and successful or not, what are your personal criteria for being a good lawyer? For your saying, and I agree with your assumption, that you are a superb litigator, what are the basics? Well, I think you've got to um, be comfortable that you've done everything you can to put your client's message in the best light. That you, um, and, and you know, you're not going to be unethical in what you do. You know, you're not going to misrepresent things, but you're going to um, be as an effective of an advocate as you can. And that you're not going to turn away uh, when it gets hard. And it does. You'll have some difficult cases where you don't believe in the client. You don't believe in the issue. But that's not your job. Your job is to get your client's best arguments out there and let the judicial system and the judges uh, tell us what they believe uh, justices in, in any of these particular cases. So I think it's just being the best advocate you can uh, is, is really what it's all about. In summarizing a lot of what we've been talking about, uh, how then does the American Bail Coalition avoid the politicization of the legal system and virtually all aspects of society, it seems that no matter what we say and do, we're afflicted and affected by passions rather than fact. I don't think we can. You know, my strategy is to ignore it and to not take it personally. Um, because I know that the right to bail is important and that it should be kept around. And it predates slavery in this country. It predates all of this stuff. Uh, and how to reconcile that in the modern era is what we're grappling with. Um, right now. But I think in our, you know, folks at the American Bail Coalition, what we've said is we're not going to be partisans. We're not going to say we're Republicans. We're not going to say we're Democrats. We're not going to say we're socialists. We're not going to label ourselves because we're a one issue coalition. We believe in the fundamental right to bail and we think we should be a part of that. And, uh, and you've just got to put all the noise that's out there and all the criticisms. And certainly I get criticized all the time, every day uh, by somebody. Uh, whether it's <clears throat> one of the 15,000 bail agents that follow us on Facebook uh, or whether it's being called racist by people on the other side. And, you know, that's hard, hard to deal with. It's the modern era that we're in where we're not respectful of each other's opinions and all this sort of thing. But I'm not playing that game. I'm not getting into that because, you know, I just feel like we're better than that and we should be better than that. We're within three minutes of the end of uh, what, again, has been an informative program. Would you ever consider, Jeff, stepping away and entering the realm of politics? You know, I have <clears throat> thought about it. I mean, <clears throat> during the last cycle, some opportunities popped up. Um, but, you know, I have certain requirements of things that I'm going to want. Uh, um, and in that particular time, the thing I was really focused on was hate crimes. I wanted something done on hate crimes. Um, but I don't think, I, you know, I, I might be a good candidate. I think I'm a better advisor. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, I'd love to go you know, work for the Justice Department or the White House and, 
And you know me, I could work for a Democrat or a Republican. I could even work for, you know, America's first orange president. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to serve at some point. And I think at some point I probably will. I must ask you, as I've asked you before, as I've asked you about segueing into politics before, is there a book lying in a drawer in your desk that you hope to finish? There is. And I actually, you know, I was inspired last time we talked to get, to get writing and tell, you know, the real story of one, my life story, how I got into this, and two, how on a shoestring budget, you know, we fended off a system that the ACLU and that everybody opposed in the 80s that was being thrown at this country again. And I'm proud of that. And we did it on a shoestring budget, as I said. And, and I want to tell the story of how we did it. And I told my colleague who's helping me co-write the book that when, when we hired him, the only way we're going to win is brick by brick. That's how you build a house. Uh, and we want to tell the story of how we did that because we know every little thing that happened along the way was another brick that got us to this endpoint that locking people up without bail and using a risk assessment to do it was not the right answer. And you know, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. It's taken five years to get here, but I think we finally have. Are you optimistic that your book will have a last chapter? Yeah, yeah, I am. I, I am optimistic. I, you know, talking to uh, you know some some folks I know in the media, they said, Jeff just be aware, it's probably not going to be a bestseller. And I said, you know, that's fine. I, you know, as part of my job with the American Bail Coalition, I just want to tell the story. And I think hopefully the last chapter, um, you know, will be working on an even a bigger issue and solving some uh, important societal problem uh, and leaving some kind of a legacy, uh, you know, when I'm gone. Last 40 seconds of our discussion for today to those in the listening audience who have contacted me, law students, who've been curious about their approach to all of this, some final words on your part to them. Well, don't give up. Don't give up and don't um, worry about it. Don't worry about whether you're going to be a prosecutor or a corporate lawyer or, or this or that or sort of thing. The best advice I got was when an opportunity comes, take it, even if it's not the right fit right now. And eventually over time, you'll settle into where you belong and you'll end up at the right place. And if you would have told me I was going to be doing this job and I was going to be on the PBS NewsHour last week taping in Denver uh, on the story of bail reform, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, but I'm proud of that now. And, and I think of all the different twists and turns that I've taken to get here. But I would say, you know, stay strong, go through it, and take what opportunities come, even if that's not where you originally saw yourself or was the reason you even went to law school in the first place. We'd like to thank Mr. Jeff Clayton for his return again. It was expository. It was enlightening. It was informative. It was everything that a discussion should be. Thank you, Jeff. The program has been seldom said. My name is Robert. Be with us again next time. <laughs>